among many concerning this great man of God in the past was how he was one day on a ship and he had to meet someone I believe it was in England at that time and he had to be there at a certain time and while they were traveling fog had settled in and the ship was just not able to hardly go at all and so George Miller told the captain he said we've got to get there on time the captain said well we can't he said we're the fog is too heavy we just cannot travel uh, at a very rapid pace well George Miller said well let's go down to your cabin and pray about it and so they went down to the cabin and they prayed about it George Mueller prayed he said Lord I believe that this is a disappointment is of you I have to be there now God I'm asking you to lift the fog so that we can get there on time the captain asked Mueller after he finished praying he said should I pray and George Mueller said no he said you don't believe that God's going to answer prayer anyhow said there's no need of you praying he said beside that God has already answered prayer and they went up on deck and the uh, fog had lifted so when you read records like that maybe you've been driving already in the fog or you have been traveling and the weather has not been ideal and you've asked the Lord about it and the weather has continued on not being so ideal uh, you might wonder why it is that you do not have that kind of power in prayer. I have also with me today, and I trust that we have enough, a tract written concerning the prayer life of George Mueller and what he learned about prayer in his own life. And I found it to be extremely profitable and uh, quite interesting and I believe in harmony with God's will and with God's purpose for our lives. Well, for those of you who do not know me personally, my name is Pastor Floyd Baker. I was born and raised in a Christian home, as I mentioned last night. My father is a pastor. He's been in the ministry for many, many years, perhaps over 50 years now. And I thank the Lord for him. At 84, he's still preaching the Word of God. And there are times when he will travel on a Friday afternoon some 120 miles to teach a Bible class near Detroit, teach Friday night, teach again on Saturday, drive back home on Saturday, and then he has a small church that he ministers at on Sunday. Along with this, he continues to visit the afflicted, the widows, and uh, carries on quite an active ministry. And, of course, I can't thank the Lord enough that God has been gracious to him for these many years. My mother uh, went home to be with the Lord some years ago. We thank God for her. Uh, certainly, the heritage of a Christian mother is one of the greatest blessings that anyone could possibly have. Uh, there were seven of us children in the family. And being in, brought up in the home of a pastor, money was always uh, a little bit scarce. I recall when Dad uh, took the church in Grand Rapids, Michigan there, the Brian Church there, back in 1936. Uh, on Sundays, they would bring the offering plate over to the house after the services and dump the offering out on the table and count it out to see whether or not they had enough money to pay the preacher's wages that week. Most of the time, I think they made it. But the Lord blessed, and the word began to grow, and today, though Dad has been out of the uh, Brian Church there for quite a number of years, it is perhaps one of the largest grace churches uh, today. But the Lord greatly used him, and we are thankful for it. I attended a church service as a lad with my father, and it was a church where when they gave the invitation, they came right down into the audience and would ask each one individually, are you saved? And I've not been in a meeting like that before. And even though I was brought, born and brought up in a Christian home, even though I'd heard the way of salvation many, many times over, 
I did not have the assurance of my salvation. And that day when they came down that aisle, they began to go to different ones and ask them, Are you saved? Are you saved? I was sitting on the right hand of my father, and the aisle was on his left side. And I began to crouch down just as much as I could behind him, lest they come and ask me, was I saved? But I knew what I would tell them if they came. They asked me if I was saved. I would simply tell them, my father's a preacher. And after all, a preacher's kids can't get to heaven. Who can? Well, I realized that even being born in a Christian home, having a godly mother and a godly father, man of God who loved the Lord and loved the word of God, that all of that was not sufficient for my salvation. I had to come to the place in my young life where I personally acknowledged before God that I was a sinner. But I knew that Jesus Christ died for sinners and that included me. And through an act of simple faith, I passed out of death into life, out of Adam into Christ. I passed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And I've been learning ever since then about the blessings that belong to me because I'm in God's family, because I'm in the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And I praise Him for it today. So that's just a little bit of my background. Also, Mr. Baker is teaching up on top of the hill a little bit. We've been married now some 31 years. I can't thank God enough for a Christian wife, for one who loves the Lord, one who shares the same spiritual ideals that I have, one who loves the Word of God rightly divided and supports us uh, in the ministry of His Word. And it's just a joy and a privilege to have her here with us this year uh, ministering the Word of God as well. And she's very thorough, very capable, far more than I am perhaps as far as being thorough in many areas because when she does something, she really does it to the nth degree. I'm not quite that way. Uh, I kind of sometimes play it by ear. I feel more comfortable doing it that way. I don't like to get involved in uh, too structured of a program. I like to have leeway. And we're going to be taking that leeway again this week. I'm prepared to go in at least two different directions. In our study on prayer, uh, we are going to be looking at it in its dispensational implications. Uh, we are also going to be concerning ourselves with prayer throughout the scriptures. So I believe that as I sense some of the questions that you might have, some of the areas that you might be concerned about as far as prayer, uh, we're going to kind of take it from there and just go in whatever direction we feel will be the greatest need in all of our lives. And after all, isn't that really what we're concerned about? You know, I personally believe that no doctrine in the Bible is of any value to us unless it affects our everyday lives. Our salvation is a personal salvation. Our salvation affects us. It affects our homes. It affects my relationship with my wife. It affects my relationship with my family, with my children, with our grandchildren. We had two, three children, two sons and a daughter. They're all married. Uh, we thank God they're all saved, and they're all busy for the Lord. And uh, again, I just feel so grateful to God for His blessings upon our home in this way. So we're going to uh, take it this way and see how we can deal with this idea or question of prayer and uh, how it affects us. But just before we do, shall we look to the Lord in prayer? Our Father, we thank you first of all for the privilege that we have of even coming into thy presence. We know that in ourselves we are not worthy of it. And it's only because of Christ and only because of, the, because of the cross that we even dare lift our voices and our hearts heavenward today. But we thank you that thou art a heavenly Father, thou art a loving Father, gracious and merciful to us, and we praise you for it. Now we acknowledge before thee today the fact that we're still learning, even though we've been saved for many, many years. The Spirit of God is still leading us along in the wonderful truths of your word. Now, Lord, we realize today that there are many questions about prayer, 
We hear so many claims in our present times. Claims of divine healing. Claims, Father, of financial blessings. Claims of material blessings. And oftentimes people are questioning why it is their prayers seemingly go unheard and unanswered. But Father, we know that never a prayer goes unheard and never a prayer goes unanswered. And we thank you for that. Now bless us as we open up the sacred pages again today. May the Holy Spirit of God be our teacher. Might he be our instructor. Most of all, Father, might each of us be in a place where the Holy Spirit indeed can bless our lives. We ask this now because of your beloved Son in whose name we pray. Amen. Recently, in visiting a convalescent home, I was talking with a gentleman there. His wife is perhaps in her 80s. I would gather that she has hardened the arteries. Her mind is fast fading. And she is to the place now where she doesn't know him any longer. He tries to communicate with her, but she's not able to communicate back. And he said to me not very long ago, he said, You know, Pastor, he said, I'm ready to just toss it all in. To toss the towel in. He said, I've been praying about my wife. And he said, the Bible tells me that whatsoever I pray, faith believing, God is going to give to me. And so I've been praying for my wife. She's not getting better. She's getting worse. And I've exercised my faith. I've done what God has asked me to do. And God doesn't answer prayer. And he said, I just don't know where to go anymore. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. He said, I'm ready to just throw everything over. Well, I said, I want to talk with you just a little bit because I believe that there is a reason for this and there is an answer for it in scriptures. And the answer, of course, is understanding God's promises to us today. Now, we've heard this statement, whatsoever you ask, faith believing, you're going to get. There are those today who tell us that if you're physically sick and you pray, God will heal you. If you're going through financial problems, if you pray, God will send the finances in. And whatever the problems might be, if you just go to the Lord, He's going to take all the problems away. And life is going to become nothing but really a bed of roses for the child of God. Well, you and I know that that's not true, nor did God ever promise that. The Word of God does tell us that all who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. Our Lord said to his disciples, the world hated me and they're going to hate you. Now when you and I endeavor to live for the Lord, we're not going to be too popular with the world. The world isn't going to love us. They may not stand in direct opposition to us. They might even respect us in many ways for our stand, and I believe that. You see, while I've been in the ministry for 20-some years, of my 31 years in the ministry, I worked in a factory. I know what it is to sweat. I know what it is to punch the clock. I know what it is to work 40 and 50 hours a week along with my ministry. So I know I've been there. I know the problems that you're faced with in the workaday world. I, I know just what life is all about in that sense. But I also know that we have a God that is able to meet us where we're at. And a God that is able to be with us throughout the course of any given day. And uh, I know there are problems. Uh, believers struggle. They get sick. They have financial problems. They have discouragements. They have disappointments. And we understand that. God said we would. God never promised that we would not. So again, we have to understand what God's promises are to us and that it does work not only in the lives of preachers, but in the lives of every one of us. We often think, you know, if our circumstances were different, I think, I don't know if we lost power here or not, but if our circumstances were different, things would be different for us. But keep in mind, again, what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. 
but that God is faithful and will with every testing provide for us a way of escape that we might be able to bear up underneath it. My dear friend, you nor I will ever go through a testing in this life that others have not already gone through, that others are not going through, and that some are going to go through yet in the future. Our circumstances are never unique. They may have little different uh, twists to them, but our circumstances are never unique to ourselves. It is common to man. But God says he is faithful. And I believe that. Now I have just a few things I want to share with you and then we better move along here in our study. Some things that I have observed about prayer. First of all, I want you to realize that prayer is to bring us into harmony with God's will and not God into harmony with our will. Did you get that? Prayer is to bring us into harmony with God's will and not God into harmony with our will. Now last night I touched upon what I believe is the central problem in the Christian life. It is without question the central problem in the world today and that is the big I. Myself. You see, if I have a problem with somebody else, the problem is not with them. The problem is with me. You might say, well, wait a minute, preacher. Wait a minute now. Uh, maybe they have done something to you that has hurt you. Well, that, my dear friend, is between them and the Lord. That's their problem. It becomes mine if I react in a wrong way to what they have done. Then it becomes my problem. Someone, when I was talking with recently, something had come up. Things had not worked out right and there were some hurt feelings. And they said, well, they did not do that right. It wasn't the way it should have been done. I said, that's not your problem. That's their problem. Your problem is how you react to what they have done. And the problem that I find in my Christian life and the problem that I see in the lives of every one of us is the big I. You see, we are concerned about ourselves. Nobody's going to do that to me, right? That's what self says. If you do that to me, I'm going to get even with you. Now, that's the old nature. I know all about that. I've lived with the old nature for 50-some years already. <laughs> Nobody has to tell me about the old nature, you know. The heart of man is still deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. And I don't care how long you have been saved, your old nature is as rotten and as filthy as it was the day when Jesus Christ became your Lord and your Savior. Amen. That'll never change. And the sooner you are aware of that fact, the more you're going to be able to control that old nature. Now, if you think today that you are beyond sinning, you had better get back into your Bibles and read some of the scriptural records of men far greater than you and I, and women far greater than you here today, that fell into sin. Now, the old nature never, does, never changes. The old man is quick to respond to any kind of attack upon us. I'm the same way. Except, of course, we realize that we have to bring it into control and bring it into submission to the will of God. So if I have someone that I'm not able to get along with, I don't pray, Lord, change them. I say, Lord, give me the grace, give me the strength to live at peace with them so much as possible. And I think that's scriptural. You see, we're always trying to change the other person. Always. We're always trying to change things. Brethren, you don't do it. And I say this to anyone who is contemplating marriage, any of you young people that may be thinking about marriage, never enter into marriage with the idea that you're going to change your mate after you marry them. You never will. 
If you enter into marriage with the idea of changing your mate, you're going to end up with conflict. There's going to be a battle in your marriage constantly because you're trying to change your mate. You can't change them. God can if they need changing, but you aren't going to do it. The moment you begin to try and change them, they're going to set up a wall between yourself and them and you're going to have a battle. Either that or they're going to withdraw. And that's as bad oftentimes as a conflict. It can be equally destructive. So we have to realize that. Whenever you're going with a person and you're going to marry that person, you just remember this. You're going to get what you see and more when you enter into marriage. And oftentimes people have said, well, pastor, when I was going with them, oh, I knew they had this problem. I didn't know how bad it was. That's right. Because whatever you marry, you're going to get more. You better believe it. So uh, we need to pray, not that God will change others, but God work in my heart and work in my life. So prayer, first of all, is not to bring God in conformity to my will, but to bring me into conformity to God's will And my dear friend, God's will is found in the Word of God. It's found in the Word of God. You don't have to... The will of God is not a mystery. Romans chapter 12 tells us that. And I think it's wonderful as you read Romans chapter 12. Let's just note that briefly. Romans chapter 12. And uh, notice what we have here concerning the will of God. We'll begin reading with verse 1. We're not going to spend a great deal of time here. Our main concern is God's will. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now the mercies of God have been demonstrated in Romans 9 through 11. God's been merciful to Israel. God's been merciful to the Gentiles. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, on the basis of God's mercies that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is the intelligent or the reasonable thing to do. It's reasonable. That's what God wants, and God is not making any request upon us that is not reasonable. I want to say that again. God will never demand from you anything that is not reasonable. God will never expect anything from you that cannot be performed. God is not an unreasonable God. We become unreasonable. But God does not. See? But let's go on. In verse uh, 2 we read there, Be not conformed to this world or this age, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, we have to readjust our thinking, don't we? There has to be the renewing of the mind that we may prove by testing, if you please, prove by testing what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, who is God's will good for? It's good for me. God's will is perfect for whose life? For my life. God's will is acceptable to who? To me. Now, if you don't believe it, try it. Test it. That's what Paul is saying. Prove it by testing. And you'll find that God's will is good, it is perfect, and it is acceptable. And if you and I truly believe that today, we would want more than anything else in this world the will of God for our lives. That would be the prayer that we would pray every morning. God, may your will be formed in me. May my will be brought into harmony with your will. Now, I don't know. I purposely went to my other Bible and uh, maybe I did and maybe I did not. I took out Yes, here it is. Something I found uh, quite some time ago. I've used it a number of times, dealing with the will. It's called the will of God. 
It's a poem. The author is unknown, found in the papers of an African missionary. Maybe you've read it before. Laid on thine altar, O my Lord divine, accept my gift this day for Jesus' sake. I have no jewels to adorn thy shrine, nor any world-famed sacrifice to make. But here I bring with my trembling hands this will of mine, a thing that seemeth small, Yet thou alone, O Lord, canst understand how that when I yield thee this, I yield thee my all. Hidden therein, thy searching gaze can see struggles of passion, visions of delight, all that I have or fain or would be, deep loves, fond hopes, longings infinite, it hath been wet with tears and dimmed with sighs, clenched in my grasp till no beauty hath it none. Now from thy footstool where it vanquished lies, thy prayer ascendeth, may thy will be done. Take it, O Father, ere my courage fail, and merge it so with thine own that even in times of desperate hours my cries prevail. And thou give back my gift. It may have been so changed, so purified, so fair have grown, so one with thee, so filled with love divine, I may not know or feel it as my own, but gaining back my will may find it thine. I like that. Because, my dear friend, neither you nor I will ever truly be happy in this life, nor will you ever really enjoy peace or contentment until your will is brought into harmony with God's will. Now we struggle against the will of God. It always brings conflict in our lives. But when my will and God's will are united together, I find in my life and in my heart the joy the peace, the contentment that I've really longed for. You see, the world thinks it's in the world today, but it's not in the world. Their joy is very fleeting, isn't it? They have it today and tomorrow it's gone. I know, I've seen it. I've seen the men on Fridays when they receive their paychecks get out the cards and begin their gambling. They would go home and gamble all weekend. Along with it, they do their drinking. They come back on Monday, some of them the winners, few of them, most of them the losers. Money was gone. They would come in with headaches, upset stomachs, and they'd had a great time that weekend. I don't know, I just couldn't see it. I've, I've had more fun than with a bellyache before, I can tell you that. I said, no, that's not for me. I'll tell you, if you'd been with me on the weekend, I had a great time. I was serving the Lord. And when I began my week on Monday, I could look back on the past couple of days and see what God had done for His glory and praise. And I knew that was invested for eternity. It wasn't time spent or wasted. It was an investment in eternity. And you know, when you invest for God, it always pays eternal dividends. That's why I'm in the ministry. I'm not in the ministry because it brings a lot of money. It doesn't. The first church I had for 12 and a half years, I received $10 a week. Now, I couldn't live on that, even back then. Say nothing about today. Now, I'm not just saying this to boast or brag, but I'm just saying I'm in the ministry not because of the money. I'm in the ministry because, first of all, my life belongs to the Lord. And secondly, I have something I want you to know and understand about my great God and my loving Heavenly Father. Because I want you to be in heaven if you're not saved. And if you are saved today and you go to heaven, I want you to go to heaven so that God can reward you for faithful service while you've been down here. I want you to learn how to invest your time for the Lord. I want you to learn while you're down here how you can enjoy life. 
You see, when the Lord Jesus Christ becomes first in our lives and foremost in our lives, it does something to your home life. And when you have a wife who loves the Lord, and when you yourself love the Lord and you des desire to serve the Lord together, you know it brings peace and joy and harmony into that home. It's just so wonderful. I believe the home is to be our island of tranquility in this world. When the husband comes home from work at a busy day, if the wife is able to be at home, he should be able to walk into that house and walk into an island of tranquility. When that door closes, the problems that have been with you all day long should be able to be left outside of the door. And there should be a oneness, there should be a unity in that home that just is so glorious and so great. It doesn't always stay there because I'm still human, you're still human. I get ornery once in a while, my wife knows that. But you know, I'm blessed because she loves the Lord and she has the Holy Spirit of God working in and through her. So when I get mean and ornery, she loves me anyhow. See, because the Spirit of God enables her to love me when I'm not always so loving. And I thank the Lord for that. And I believe every one of us can develop that kind of a home. But it goes back to the will of God. You see, it's the will of God for the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's God's will. Now, I believe today if husbands would learn how to love their wives as Christ loves the church, there'd be a tremendous change in the homes of the Lord's people. And if wives would learn to be in submission, to be in obedience to their husbands, scripturally, scripturally. Now I know it's a hard thing for a woman to submit to a man who doesn't love her. It's a hard thing, a difficult thing. So what I'm saying in all of this is even in our prayer life, it is to bring our lives into conformity to God's will. Not God's will into conformity with my life or with my will. God's will is good, it's perfect, it's acceptable. All right, now the second thing that we find concerning prayer, it is an acknowledgement of God. It is an acknowledgement of God. How can I pray to God if I don't believe in a God? So secondly, it is an acknowledgement of God. Thirdly, I find it is an attitude of of expectation. And I believe that prayer has more to do with one's attitude than one's position. That is, I do not believe that simply because we kneel that we are closer to God. Though the songwriter has written, sometimes when I kneel down to pray, I feel that God is closer. I don't have the word just right there, but we sing it. I've sung it myself. But prayer is an attitude. And as I pray to God, it is the attitude of my heart, it is the attitude of my life, it is an attitude of expectation. I believe in God, I believe that God hears me, I believe that God will answer, I have an attitude of expectation in my life in prayer. Now the fourth thing, or the fifth thing, I guess really is what we're looking at. The fourth it is. Uh, it is a realization of God's power and presence in our lives. Now, you and I are bound by circumstances, aren't we? God is not. I believe in God's power. I believe in God's presence. But I believe in God's power according to God's word and according to God's will. And again, I think we need to understand that. And we'll be looking at this as we go along. Another area, perhaps I didn't give you this one. It is a recognition of a need. I go to God because I have a need. That need might be fellowship. That need may be physical. That need may be spiritual. That need may be even regarding others. And so when I go to the Lord in prayer... It expresses a need. Then I have another little thing. And by the way, much of what I'm giving you is not unique to me. Some of it is. Most of what we teach we're indebted to others for. Perhaps 90% of it. 
But another little thing is this, that prayer is only for God's people. Prayer is only for God's people. I've had unsaved say, well, I went through a hard time and boy, I prayed to God and he heard me. No, no, God did not hear. That prayer never got up to God. Prayer is only for God's people. No unsaved person has a right ever to address God as their father. Because they're not. God is not. Ephesians, the second chapter, we're told there that there is a power that is operating. Well, let's take a look at that verse. I had a telephone call. Since we've been in Madison, Wisconsin, we received different telephone calls. The other day I received a telephone call and the party said to me, Are you acquainted with casting out demons? And I was sitting there at my noon hour. And it just seemed like, I don't know why they call it noon hour, but they do. Uh, one time somebody called uh, at noon hour and said, Pastor, uh, I want to know, what do you believe about suicide? I said, what do you mean? Well, said, do you believe if somebody commits suicide, they'll go to heaven? And so I talked to him. I said, are you inquiring for yourself or for someone else? He said, for myself. You know, I watched the newspaper. I never saw anything in the newspaper the next day. <laughs> I talked with him for a while and told him that God had a purpose for their lives other than just simply taking their life. But anyhow, this person called and said, are you acquainted with, with, with casting out demons? Have you done it before? I said, well, I've dealt with the unsaved before. I said, no, I'm, I mean, have you ever cast out demons? I said, listen, every unsaved person belongs to the adversary of the devil. Every unsaved person. Look what we have in Ephesians 2, verses 1, and, 1, 2, and 3. And you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, or according to the course of this age, are you aware of the fact that every one of us were sinners and rebels against God before we were saved? Are you aware of that fact? You know, I've talked to people about salvation. I've asked them, are you saved? Yes, I'm saved. How long have you been saved? Well, I've always been saved. Uh-oh. If you've always been saved, I said, when did you realize you were lost? I don't know. What do you mean lost? I said, my dear friend, you can't be saved until you realize you're lost. You can't come to know Christ until you realize you need to know Christ as your Savior. And I'm asking you today, are you saved? When did you realize you were lost? When did you realize that you did not belong to God? When did you realize that you were in Satan's kingdom? Well, you may not have realized it in such terms... But you realized you were separated from God. Notice what verse 2 says. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this age. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now is operating in the children of disobedience. Actually it says in the sons of the disobedience. In the sons of the disobedience. Every one of us my dear friend. Every one of us were here in verse 2. Every one of us were in Satan's kingdom before we were saved. Yes, even a preacher's son brought up in a godly home. I too was in Satan's kingdom until one day by faith God did a work in my life. And another thing, an interesting thing about verse 2, we have a term that Paul uses in verse 4 and verse 5, rather, of chapter 1. Having predestinated us under the position of sonship. Now, in verse 2 of Ephesians 2, they are the sons of the disobedience. Same word. Different kingdom. Everyone who is in Satan's kingdom is a son of kingdom. And the word son here, the word adoption in Ephesians 1, 5 has not the idea of adopting a little child. It has to do with position. It has to do with blessings. You have it in Galatians chapter 4. Paul beautifully draws this out for us. But what it simply teaches is this. There was a time, and all of us perhaps have experienced in some measure, but underneath Roman custom, 
There was a time when a person would come of age. Let's say a father would say to a son, Son, at 17 you come of age, and everything that I have at 17 becomes yours. Everything. Now, today, of course, if we were saying this to our sons, 18 is our legal age in our nation today, but of our sons, we said, now, son, 18 years of age, everything I have is yours. Our son might say, Dad, you mean even the car out there? I don't even have to ask for it anymore? No, son, when you're 18 years of age, you and I are partners. That's your car just as much as mine. Wow. You know what I mean, something? Everything, Dad? Yeah, everything, son. The bank account? Yeah, son. When you're 18 years of age, you get a bank account too. You can draw out of my bank account. It's there. 18? Yeah. Oh boy, I hope 18 comes fast. We well, see, this is the idea of the word sonship here. When they reached a legal age, they became the heir of everything that the father possessed. And when you and I were saved, we became heirs of everything that the Father possesses. That's why we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ has concerning the body of Christ, I have. His righteousness is mine. His sanctification is mine. Everything that Christ has is mine because I'm an heir of God. Now those who are in Satan's kingdom are heirs of everything that the devil has. Isn't that something? Everything that Satan possesses, the unsaved man, the unsaved woman, the unsaved young person, is an heir right along with the adversary of the devil. That's quite sobering, isn't it? They are the sons of the disobedience. So when I say that prayer is not for the unsaved, you see, they have a different God. They have a different kingdom. They are heirs to different things. So the unsaved person, the unsaved man, the unsaved woman, the unsaved young person doesn't have access before God. Only the believer. Only the believer has access to God. And I think, the Lord willing, during this week, we're going to even refine that a little bit more. I believe that when we go to God in prayer, that we have to be right before the Lord spiritually. We heard Romans 8.28 this morning. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for good to those who love God. Brethren, that qualifies it. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that all things are working together for you, not for your good. All things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. If a believing man marries an unbelieving wife and he has problems in his life, that's not good. And we can cite many other instances. It's a qualified statement. How can I go to the Lord and ask God to bless something that I know is out of harmony with His will? I was talking to a businessman not very long ago. I mentioned him last night. He's now totally deaf. He was in partnership with another man and his wife since his fall. He didn't have too much money invested in his business. But since his fall, his brother contacted this man and his wife to get the few thousand dollars this man had in that business and they told him that they had taken his money and they put it in their bank account. He said, I could go to court and get my money. But he said, if I go to court and get my money, he said, I may never have a chance to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, the money is not worth the loss of their salvation. I said, were they saved? He said, I should not have been in business with an unsaved partner. Now, if I'm in business with an unsafe partner, how can I ask God to bless what I'm doing? You see what I mean? 
I believe that when I go to God in prayer, I have to go to God in a right spirit and in a right attitude. I believe I have to be spiritually right if I'm going to expect God to hear and answer my prayers. And I believe we can tell you this on the basis of 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul said that he wills that every man pray to God everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Lifting up holy hands before God. I cannot, as a believer, ask God to bless something that is not in accord with His will and in accord with His purpose. I can't ask God to bless a business venture that's not in harmony with His will or a business venture that may be causing me to cheat in order to make a profit. Then I'd better pray, God, get me out of business and get me where you can use me. Because you're not going to use me there. So not only do I say that prayer is not, only, is not for the unsaved, I believe that even when it comes to prayer, that our heart and our lives should be right before the Lord. David found that out in his life. You know, when David had sinned against God, and for over a year, David allowed that sin to go undealt with. And finally, Nathan came to David, and I still read those words, and I've written about them, and it will be coming out in the... One of the amazing graces in the future, Nathan said, David, thou art the man. And I'll tell you, those must have pierced right through. You're the man. And David knew what to do. David did not go out and offer an animal sacrifice. He knew that's not what God wanted. David knew what God wanted was a broken heart. Instead of just one week, but... Uh, uh, I want to give you enough so you'll go out of here with something. But I want you to go out of here with something that's going to touch your life. I want you to go away and say, well, you know what Pastor Baker said was good, but how do I apply it? I, I recall one time in one of our meetings, I was talking about marriage. I was talking about all of the ideals of marriage. And one of the ladies said to me, well, Pastor, that's well and good. But what about us? What about our lives? What about me as an unsaved, or as a believing wife with an unsaved husband? It's fine if you have a believing husband and believing wife. And she came to know Christ after she was married. What about our situation? My husband doesn't want me to go to church. He doesn't encourage me to go to church. So I'd love to have a Christian husband. I'd love to have a man that would be the spiritual leader at home. I don't have that. What about us? So oftentimes we talk about the ideals, don't we? But there's the real life too. The hurting hearts. The hurting lives. And I dare say there isn't one of us here today that doesn't have some loved one somewhere, someone we know that's hurting today. A broken marriage. Comes up more often all the time, doesn't it? A son or a daughter not living for the Lord. There are Christian parents today whose children have left home. They don't know where they're at today. They haven't heard from them maybe in weeks or months. Some of them even in years. Their hearts are hurting today. But God has something for their hurting heart, doesn't He? Brethren, I believe that Christian life is that. I believe it's a life. I believe it's practical. I believe it affects me as a man, as a person. We're not talking about something that is out of my reach or something that's out of my level. God comes right down to where I am. And He meets me there. That's what Christ did 1900 years ago. When, when Christ was in heaven, brethren, He looked down to this old earth full of sin and not any better than it was when God destroyed the earth back there in Noah's time. When God looked down on this earth and saw how bad it was and how terrible it was, if Jesus Christ had stayed up there and just said, oh, what a mess there is down there, had He not come down to earth to die for us, we'd all be lost forever, wouldn't we? But He came down to where we were. Jesus Christ became a man. And He went to the cross of Calvary to die for our sins. Now supposing Christ would have been like you and I are. Supposing he would say, well, I'm not going to give of myself. After all, I've got it pretty nice up here. Just look how wonderful it is. Why should I go down? If Christ had done that, like you and I, you know. <laughs> we're, like I have said earlier, we're always looking out for number one, aren't we? We're always looking out for ourselves. That's our problem. 
If Christ had done that, not you nor I would ever get to heaven. That's what love is. Love, my dear friend, is giving. Love is not what we get. Love is what we give. This is true in Christian love. This is true in marriage. This is true in God's love. God so loved the world, He gave. Love is giving. Alright, John 17, and we're going to have to wind this thing up. But I guess he did say we could take a little time afterwards, didn't he, if we had some discussion? Alright, good. In John chapter 17, these are, this is a prayer of our Lord. And I'm not going to tell you this is our pattern for prayer today. I just want you to note a couple of things here in John 17 that I have heard recently and I want to share them with you. Verse 1, John 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. Notice, Father, Father. Notice in verse 11, And now I am no more in the world, and these are in the world, and I come to thee, what? Holy Father. Holy Father. Go on with me, if you will, to verse 25. Again, we read the words, O righteous Father. Father. Holy Father. O righteous Father. Do we recognize God in that way today? Yes, He is our Father. But He's holy. And He is righteous. And brethren, I believe that we need to realize in our lives that there needs to be a righteous, reverential fear of God in our lives. God is not a buddy-buddy. Let's not put him on that level. He's God. He's God. He's righteous. He's holy. And I believe that, well, as John the Apostle as recorded for us in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, while Christ was on the earth, is spoken of or written about as the Apostle whom the Lord loved. And at the last feast, it was John that laid his head upon the breast of our Lord. And when the questions came up, the Apostle said, you ask him, you're close to him, you love him, he loves you, you're a special one, you ask him. In the book of Revelation, when John sees the Lord Jesus Christ as judge, he falls on his knees before the Lord, fearful. Brethren, I can't help but believe that when you and I get to heaven, we're going to be so awed about God's righteousness and God's holiness, we're not going to say anything for a while. Not at all. We're going to wonder how we ever got up there. But by the grace of God, we wouldn't make it, would we? Christ addressing His Father, Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father, Brethren, when we pray to God, do we pray to God in that way? He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. His will is better than my will. His way is better than my way. We saw this in one of our recent studies on a Wednesday night. Elijah. We've all had Elijah experiences, haven't we? Periods of depression. Elijah just came through one of the greatest victories that he'd had in his life while he was here on this earth. Tremendous victory over the prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel. By the way, do you know what the name Jezebel means? Would you believe it means chaste? That's what it means. Not tainted by the world. Last night we were talking about how a name is fitting to a person. I'll tell you... Uh, that name did not fit the person or the personality, did it? But Jezebel, when she heard what Elijah had done to the 450 prophets of Baal, she said, I'm going to have his head. And even after Elijah saw God send fire down from heaven and devour the sacrifices, the altar, lap up the stones and everything, Elijah said, oh, poor me, you know, she's going to kill me. And away he went. He ran away. And the Lord came to Elijah and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? 
And Elijah said, Lord, I'm all alone. There's just nobody else. Lord, you know all about what I've done. You know what a good life I've lived. You know what I've done for you, Lord, and I'm all alone. And twice Elijah told that to the Lord. And the Lord finally said to Elijah, you go on back where you belong. Elijah said, I've got work for you to do. Elijah wanted to die. He said, Lord, I'm ready. take me out of this old world. I want to die. That was Elijah's plan. You know what God's plan was? One day Elijah and Elisha were walking together. And there came a whirlwind and a fiery chariot and away Elijah went. Which plan was best? Elijah's plan to die out there in the wilderness? Defeated? Discouraged? Or God's plan to take him without dying? I happen to believe God's plan was better than Elijah's, don't you? And my dear friend, I think it's that way with us today too. I believe God's plan for our lives is better than ours. You see, we want to do things our own way and oh, how we mess up so often. But when we do things God's way, when we let His will become our will, what a difference it makes in our lives. Shall we bow our hearts? Father, thank You. Thank You for loving us even when we fail even when we falter. Thank you for caring for us, even when we don't seem to care for you. Now, Lord, we've said a lot in this time that we've been together this morning. But gracious God, might it be profitable, at least in some measure, in all of our lives. We pray this not alone for your sake and for your glory and praise, but for our sake as well. In our Savior's name, amen. Well, I guess we uh, are permitted a little time of questions or discussion. I didn't say how long. Maybe you've got some thoughts. I, I realize we haven't developed too far in our subject of prayer, but we will continue to do so. Anyone with any question or comment? Nope. Yes. Yeah, when you were uh, earlier when you talked about uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Yes. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite scriptures, two scriptures, I always felt that, that when our reasonable service, it was reasonable not from a logical standpoint, but also from the standpoint of Romans 1 to 11, the blessings that are the way we were condemned, mm-hmm. the way we were sanctified and justified. And, and so this, from the blessing standpoint, mm-hmm. turn about yeah. reasonable service. This, this is the summation of it all. But it is also reasonable from a logical standpoint. Yeah, logical. It works out both ways. It's based, Paul is showing that it's reasonable on the basis of everything that God has done. He has built it up to this point. And I say this is the reasonable thing to do. But it is also reasonable from the logical or the practical standpoint as well. When you get all the facts together, then it's reasonable. Well, even, even in, in what I'm going to benefit from it, so it's reasonable. It's reasonable to serve the Lord because that's where I get the greatest joy and the greatest blessing. It's reasonable on the basis of everything else God's done. I can see His faithfulness. I can see His will. I can see how He works. And so it, it is a reasonable thing, yes. Anyone else with a question? Yes. At the beginning you said that uh, prayer is to bring into harmony with God's will. And I didn't get that. Prayer is to bring our will in harmony to God's will. Not God's will into harmony with our will. You see, oftentimes we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, this is what I want. We need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what is it you want? And we'll be looking at that. We'll, we'll be looking at Paul's prayer life uh, before the week is over, and we'll see what he prayed about and how uh, it becomes our pattern for prayer as well. In case, well, I've got a couple more, a few more days to go here, but what we are hoping to do, time permitting, time allowing, I want to look into the prayer of Daniel, if we have time, in Daniel chapter 9. So we don't have time. I want to 
uh, share that with you. Also in the book of Second Chronicles, I want to look at the prayer of Solomon in the dedication of the temple. It's a beautiful prayer. Both of these are just, just marvelous. Perhaps we'll come back and look a little bit more at uh, John 17. Uh, also, we're going to be looking at Paul's prayer life, which, again, is important to us today dispensationally. And we will be spending at least two days on that because uh, that, I think, is essential. So I have a lot of things we want to cover. But uh, like I said, we're going to kind of play it by ear and see once what direction you will have us to go in uh, along with the direction that will be most profitable for all of us. Yes? What about Paul's prayer versus what chapters? Well, we're going to be dealing with uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, actually, we're dealing with Ephesians 6. We're going to be dealing with 1 Thessalonians 5. We've got quite a number of things regarding prayer uh, in the life of Paul and Paul's instructions to the believer. So, But I'll be giving you all the information that you'll need and for what we don't get done, uh, you'll be able to go home and do some studying on your own.